to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. If you aren't following us on social media, make sure to head to Facebook and Instagram and search for My Collective Church to learn more about what is going on at Collective as we start this new year. Thank you again for listening. Now let's get into Sunday's message. So you probably didn't know this about me, and you definitely wouldn't have guessed it, but I come from a family of cat people. Uh, This is not the proudest part of my family history. Uh, Growing up, my grandparents had about 30 cats. Uh, There were cats everywhere. Honestly, there could have been less, but there also could have been more. If you have cats, you know what that's like. There were cats and cat dishes and cat toys and cat litter boxes all over the house. And apparently this rubbed off on my parents because growing up, we had multiple cats in our house through most of my childhood. When I was about 13, though, my parents bought a house, and as we were preparing to move, they sat us down to tell us that the cats weren't moving with us. And at this point, they were mostly outdoor cats, and they were very unkempt, and they didn't want them in our new home. And we understood this because we were not good cat owners and because cats are the worst. I mean, we had this cat that seemingly only came into our house to throw up on the furniture and then leave again. And cat people are like, oh, that's so sweet. It's not, okay? It's gross. (laughs) Uh, So the first Saturday we're in our new house, I remember waking up and coming downstairs and I see my mom walking in the front door and I can tell that she's a bit caught off guard, almost like she didn't expect anyone to be up that early. And so she paused for a second and then she told me that she had just taken our cats to a farm and I totally believed her. So for the next six years, I believe that my mom woke up early on a Saturday morning and brought our cats to a special cat farm that was located somewhere in Loudoun County. Don't judge me yet. It gets worse. So one afternoon while I'm in college, I was eating lunch with my now wife, Ray, and I have no idea how we got on this topic, but I mentioned that we used to have cats, but my mom brought them to a farm when we moved. And she looked at me with the sweetest look. You know that look where their eyes tell you that they love you and that they're concerned for you at the same time? It's that bless your heart look. It's the you're so cute, but you're so dumb look. And then she said, Michael, you don't think your mom actually brought your cats to a farm, do you? Now, I'm not a naive person. Like, I'm really not. Uh, But for some reason, I genuinely believe that my mom brought our cats to a farm to live out their final days enjoying the outdoors. In fact, I always had this picture in my head where, like, the sun's setting, and there's, like, wheat, and there's horses and cows, and my cats are, like, with them, like it's a Budweiser commercial or something, and that they, like, protect the barn from rodents. I don't know. So I got really defensive. I said, she told me she brought them to a farm. Why would she lie about that? Then Ray leaned in and she hugged me really tight and whispered in my ear, I love you, but your cats are dead. (laughs) But I didn't believe her. Like, they're on a farm somewhere. And so fast forward 10 years, I'm in my 30s. Uh, We're at my mom's house. And out of the blue, she brings up the cats. And Ray tells her, did you know that Michael legitimately believes you brought them to a farm? My mom looked at me with the same look Ray did so many years ago and just said, oh, sweetie. 
I know. So listen, we all grow up believing lies that we've been told. I don't know what happened to the cats. I don't want to know. Okay, they're on a farm still in my head. So we all grow up believing these lies that we've been told. And some of them don't do harm, but there are lies, lies that we believe that hurt us. And the truth is, most of the time, we don't even know that they're lies. Like, we think that they're truth. Maybe they're lies that somebody told us. Uh, maybe they're lies that we picked up through social media, lies that come from assumptions that we've made, lies that manifest through stories we've heard growing up. And these lies impact our life. They impact how we think, and they impact how we live, even if we don't know it. So today we're starting this new series called Lies We Believe, and it's a four-week series that will conclude on April 17th, which is Easter. And we're going to look at four lies that we believe are hurting our faith. But in order for us to talk about lies, we actually have to start by talking about truth. There's a famous quote that goes like this, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I know many of you have heard this before. Martin Luther King Jr. quotes this in his speech, The Other America. It's actually carved into stone on the original headquarters building of the CIA. It's the motto for the University of Tennessee and John Hopkins University. But do you know where it comes from? Jesus. Jesus says in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Side note, Dr. King totally knew he was quoting Jesus. Remember, he was a pastor first. But it says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I mean, that sounds good, but what is truth? Right? Where does truth come from? Who decides what is true and what is not? Well, the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible, so let's dig a little bit deeper. Jesus says this about truth in John 17. He says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Right? So Jesus tells us that God's word is truth. And God's word is just another way of saying the Bible or scripture. But God's word is reality. It's fact. And according to Jesus, God's word is truth, and God's truth sets us free. And naturally, some of you are comforted by this. You trust God, and you find peace in the truth that it comes from God who created the universe and wanted you to be in it. But some of you are pushing back internally right now, and that's okay. But let me ask you this. If you had to choose between God or your parents, who would you rather define what truth is? If you had to choose between God or media or God or politicians or God or that influencer, that athlete, that movie store, if you had to choose between God or yourself, who would you rather define what truth is? Even if you don't believe in God, I would bet that you would rather there be a God who defines truth than allow other flawed people to define it, right? Flawed people who don't know you, who don't see you, who you are not their number one priority. They are their number one priority, and so Jesus says God's word is truth, not my word, not your word, God's word. But that leads to the next question. Why should we believe Jesus? Right? Are we supposed to trust that God's word is truth because it comes from an old book? Are we supposed to trust God's word because our grandma does? Are we supposed to trust God's word because my pastor told me to? No. The reason we listen to and believe in Jesus is because he rose from the grave. Listen, I don't have this like complex or deep theology or understanding of Christ. If you stick around here long enough, at some point you'll whisper to your neighbor, uh, he's a pretty simple person. And I'm okay with that, right? My faith is pretty simple, but here's my theology. See, if Jesus was just some guy who said, my teachings will set you free and that was it, 
I don't think you should listen to him. But that's not all he said. He said, the authorities are going to arrest me. He said, they're going to mock and beat me, and then they're going to publicly execute me. But don't worry, on the third day, I'm going to walk out of this tomb alive. And then he did it. And people saw it all happen. There were witnesses. In fact, those witnesses refused to deny that they saw it and were later executed because of that. Right? That is why we trust Jesus. That is why when God says, God's word will set you free, we believe it. Right? It's why we get baptized. It's why we go to church. It's why we read our Bible. We believe because Jesus rose from the dead. And if someone else can predict their own death, burial, and resurrection and then do it with witnesses, I will let them define truth in my life. But Jesus is the only person in human history to do so, so I'm just going to stick with him, even if I don't always understand it or even if I don't always like it. Because God's word is truth, and God's truth sets us free. Now let's talk about lies for a second. If truth comes from God, where do lies come from? Let's look at the Bible. Again, just a few verses after Jesus says that the truth will set us free, he says this, for you are the children of your father, the devil. And really quickly, he's just calling some people out. In fact, he's calling out Christians who are not living a Christian lifestyle. He's essentially just saying, hey, like you're hypocrites and you are children of the devil and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And just a few verses later, Jesus also says in John 10, 10, the thief's purpose is to, kill, is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And so here's the baseline for this series, and this is really important. We believe that God's words are truth and that Satan's words are lies. And so if we want to know the truth, we turn toward God. But the lies that we believe about ourselves and about God and about the church and about faith, they come from Satan, who is the father of lies. Satan, who hates truth, and his purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. To steal, kill, and destroy your faith, your peace of mind, your relationships, your hope, your joy, and ultimately your idea of what truth is. And so with all that being true, here's the first lie we're going to break down in this series in regard to our faith. The lie that we believe is that I can't have doubts. I can't have doubts. I can't have doubts and be a good Christian. I can't have doubts and be loved by God. I can't have doubts and grow in my faith. I can't have doubts and experience grace. I can't have doubts and see God moving in my life. I can't have doubts. And whether this came from your parents or your former pastor or that Christian girl that you went to college with or even yourself, this is a lie that many of us believe and it has a negative impact on our faith because we feel like having doubts means we're unfaithful means that we're not good enough, means that we're ungrateful, or maybe even it means that we're sinful. And that is a lie. And so what we're going to do is we're going to turn toward God's word to learn about the truth about faith and doubts. And we're going to read a story from Mark 9, uh, starting in verse 14. And this is what it says. When they returned to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd surrounding them, and some teachers of religious law were arguing with them. So ultimately, Jesus' disciples and some Christian people are having an argument. For me, in my head, I always imagine they're in like a school cafeteria. I don't know why. I know that's not the context, but they're circled up, and they're ready to fight. And when, Jesus, uh, when the crowd saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with awe, and they ran to greet him. What is all this arguing about, Jesus asked. Right before this happened, Jesus and his three closest followers, Peter, James, and John, had been away. They actually had a moment with God. 
And so they come back down off this mountain. They see what's going on. They see the other nine disciples are fighting with these people. And so Jesus asks, like, what is happening right now? One of the men in the crowd spoke up and said, teacher, I brought my son so you could heal him. He is possessed by an evil spirit that won't let him talk. So this is when we learned that this story is about a father. It's about a father who had heard that Jesus might be able to heal his son. The father continues, and whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him violently to the ground. Then he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. And so now we know why they're arguing. The father had come to Jesus' disciple because he was looking for an answer. He was looking for healing. And this makes sense because actually a few chapters earlier in Mark 6, Jesus had sent out his disciples and said, hey, go do good works. And one of the things he told them to do was to cast out evil spirits. But for whatever reason, these disciples couldn't do it. And so the dad's upset, right? He's desperate. And he's saying, I asked them to help, but they couldn't do it. Jesus said to them, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I'm writing the sermon. Uh, I tried to figure out a way to explain here um, what made Jesus so mean, but I can't. (laughs) Sometimes Jesus is just a blunt dude. To be honest, sometimes there are just times when he calls people out, and that's what's happening in this story. He didn't hold back. In this story, there's a crowd of people who are arguing about whether or not Jesus can heal this boy. But really what they're arguing about is whether or not Jesus truly is the Son of God. Mind you, Jesus had already performed miracles, and they'd seen it. And so he gets there, and he's just frustrated. The story continues. So they brought the boy, but when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mouth. One thing when we read scripture, it tells us that demons always recognize the true power of God. Jesus says, how long has this been happening? He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. Right, if you can. This is the first time we're starting to see these father's doubts. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked. Anything is possible if a person believes. Now, I want to clarify Jesus' statement here. Jesus isn't saying that anything is possible if a person believes in himself or herself, right? This isn't, you can do anything you want, you just have to believe. Life is not a Disney movie. Jesus' point is that anything is possible when you believe in me, right? So it's not about what we can do, it's about what Jesus can do. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I think this is one of the most comforting verses in the Bible because it tells us and it destroys the lie that faith and doubt can't coexist. The Father says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd of onlookers was growing, he rebuked the evil spirit. Listen, you spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak. He said, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into another violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd as people said, he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet, and he stood up. So let's think about this for a second. What if the father believed the lie that many of us struggle with? What if he bought into the lie that he can't have doubts and also approach Jesus? How would this story have played out? If his doubts kept him away from Jesus, he never would have brought his son to him, which means he never would have seen what Jesus could do in his life. It means he wouldn't have got the the healing that he longed for and the healing that he'd been praying for. He wouldn't get the proof that he needed to move from faith to less doubt. 
And the same is true in our own life when we buy into this lie that we are not allowed to have doubts when it comes to our faith. Right? So the lie is that I can't have doubts, but here's the truth. Doubt and faith can coexist. Right? This story is proof of that. The father had both. He had faith and he had doubts. He acknowledged, I have some belief, but I'm still uncertain. Right? He wasn't sure if Jesus was the son of God. He wasn't sure if Jesus could heal his son. He had faith and doubts. Pastor and writer John Ortberg said that Christians are not people who never doubt. They are people who doubt and worship. They're people who doubt and serve. They doubt and they help each other with their doubts. They doubt and practice faithfulness. They doubt and wait for the doubt to one day be turned into knowing. Author Philip Yancey wrote, doubt always coexists with faith, for in the presence of certainty, who would need faith at all? And I feel like I need to say this as well, uh, but there's a really big difference between doubt and cynicism. Right? Doubt uh, is actually a positive thing. Cynicism is a negative thing. People who are doubters are open-minded. Cynics are closed-minded. Doubters can be convinced by presenting evidence. Cynics cannot be convinced by presenting evidence. Doubters choose action. Cynics choose apathy. And so if you are here today and you are cynical about God and faith or the church, all of it, your real challenge today is get out of the place of cynicism and move toward doubt. Because cynicism is a closed-minded approach that will impact your ability to learn, to grow, to heal, to experience joy, to be in community. And the truth is cynicism is really unhealthy, but doubt isn't. Right? Doubt and faith can coexist. The Father says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. But here's the other thing I want to point out about this story when it comes to doubts. The Father's doubts lead him to action. Right? It is in his doubts that he approaches Jesus, that he asks for help, that he leans in. You see, when we begin to doubt, whether it's those big philosophical questions about whether or not God is real or the practical questions like, how is Jesus going to help me in my life? We have two choices. We can either step outside of our faith, we can step away from Jesus, we can step back from the church in order to figure things out, or we can step in and dig deeper. Doubts should always lead to action. So I am a naturally skeptical person, except for apparently when it comes to cats. Uh, and I've kind of always been this way. If you say something that doesn't sound right to me, I will fact check you. In fact, if you say it in front of me and I pull up my phone, I'm fact checking you right in front of you. I'm gonna Google to see if what you're saying is true. And so just a few months ago, I was on social media um, and I don't have TikTok because I'm not a high schooler. Um, but <laughs> Burn on the millennials. There you go. Uh, but someone had reposted something from TikTok on Instagram. Don't even know how you do it, but it was a TikTok and I was watching it. Um, and it showed that there was this pot that someone had burnt food in the bottom and it was completely charred. Uh, then this person went on to explain that with dish soap, salt, and baking soda, you can essentially wipe it off. And I thought, there is no way this works. Like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Uh, well, a few weeks later, I accidentally left the burner on while we were eating, and I obliterated a pot of rice, leaving what felt like an inch of charred food on the bottom. So I thought, well, I'm going to fact check this TikTok. So I Googled it, I found it, I followed the instructions, and guess what? It absolutely worked. <laughs> Seriously, it was like, it was incredible. I was like, what the heck is going on? It was kind of amazing. But it was my doubts that led me to that place. Right? I leaned in, I dug a little deeper and learned that what I was skeptical about was actually true. Now, whenever food gets burnt, I go and I trust TikTok. It's the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, 
But here's the thing. The same needs to be true when it comes to our faith. When we have doubts, that should lead us to action. Think about it like this. If you have doubts when it comes to a career you're pursuing, you don't give up. Right? You try to learn more. You talk to other people who are in that field. You do more research. You ask more questions. You try to figure out if your doubts are real. If you're in a relationship and you're having doubts, you don't stop spending time with that person. You don't just walk away. You seek out wisdom from others who are a little bit further ahead of you in life. You discuss those doubts with the person you're in a relationship with, and you try to work through them. Parents. Do you remember that feeling when you had your first kid and your hospital stay was up? After Elise was born, uh, we were in our, the hospital for two days, and the nurse walked in and said, okay, you can go home now. And so we put this two-day-old thing in a car seat, and we got in an elevator. And I remember looking at Ray, like, what the heck is going on right now? Like, why are they letting us leave? Like, we don't know what we're doing. Like, why can't we just be with nurses all the time who take care of her? Like, how is this a good idea? We had doubts, but we didn't leave our kid in the elevator and walk away. We got home and we tried our best to be good parents, and we struggled. We looked things up when we didn't know, and we did everything we could to love her. We texted our friends to see, is it normal if a kid poops 14 times in one day? So do you understand what I'm saying? If you have doubts and choose to step outside of faithful actions in order to analyze your faith, you've already rejected it. You've already given up. You've already walked away. Right now, one of the hot topics in Christianity is deconstruction. And deconstruction is actually just this academic term for this systemic pulling apart of a belief system you were raised in. Um, It's not just religious. It's any belief system uh, that you have, and you start asking questions, you have doubts, you kind of dig in. And so deconstruction isn't anything new. People have been doing it for a really long time. And for me personally, I don't hate deconstruction. I don't have an issue with it when it's done in the right way, when their doubts actually lead to action. In fact, there are dozens of people at Collective who grew up in the church and showed up here one day and thought, does this really count as church? Like, are grace and endless second chances really real? Can Jesus actually help me with my mental health or my marriage or my self-worth? Where's the standing and the sitting and the kneeling and the standing and the sitting and the kneeling? Like, why is this different than how I grew up? And they had doubts. Doubts about collective, doubts about their church experience previously, doubts about their faith, but they leaned in. They asked questions, they kept showing up, they started serving, they joined a team, and their doubts led to action, and that led them to a stronger relationship with Jesus. A ton of people who've been baptized in this church were sprinkled as babies, but then they got here, and they saw people getting dunked in a trough, and that led them to have some doubts. But they took action. They started to read their Bible. They talked to other people who went to this church or go to this church who've been baptized. They checked the box just to have a conversation with us. And eventually, they realized that the decision their parents made to sprinkle them was made out of their desire to raise and love Jesus, which is a good thing, but that their parents can't choose faith for them. Their parents can't choose salvation for them. Their parents can't choose forgiveness of sins for them. And so they checked the box and got baptized, knowing that it's a decision that Jesus tells us that we have to make for ourselves but it all starts with faith and doubt. My issue with deconstruction, though, is when I talk to people who say, I have doubts, so I'm deconstructing my faith, and then they proceed to tell me, I stopped reading my Bible, but I started to read a blog from this guy I found on the internet when I searched for very specific keywords to support my issues with Christianity. 
Or I stopped going to church, but I listened to this podcast about a church in Seattle that fell apart. And even though I never went to that church and I don't really know what's going on there, it pushed me away from mine. Or I'm not following Jesus anymore, but I'm following the son of a pastor on TikTok and he grew up in the church, so he knows a lot about what's going on. Like that isn't deconstruction. That's giving up. This is pursuing a form of truth that comes from you or other people. And if you genuinely have doubts, not cynicism, but doubts, then pursuing truth when it comes to your faith means going to the source. You do what the father did. He had doubts, and then he stood in front of Jesus. And so you worship. You read your Bible. You get into community. You lean in. You understand that faith and doubts can coexist, but your doubts should lead you to Jesus and not away from him. My friend Carl is the pastor of our sister church called Mosaic, about 45 minutes away. And he actually wrote about this story in his book, Bloodstained Pews. And he says this, there are two beautiful things about this story. One, the dad's complete honesty with Jesus. He says, Jesus, here's where I am. I'm coming to you because I'm out of options. I don't know what else to do. I don't know where else to go. I'm here because I love my kid and I'll do anything I can. And maybe you can help, but I don't believe all the way. I don't have 100% confidence this will work, but I do believe a little. And so if that's enough, that's what I've got. The second beautiful thing about this story is Jesus' response. Jesus doesn't say you don't have enough faith. Jesus doesn't say that your doubts eliminate my ability to help you. Jesus doesn't push him away because he doesn't have this perfect faith and this perfect Christianity. Jesus doesn't say you must have perfect faith in order for me to help you. Jesus simply heals the boy and gives him back to his father. And so this story should give us confidence that it's okay when we don't believe with perfect faith all the time. The father in Mark 9 understood he didn't need to have perfect faith when it came to Jesus. He understood that when we're honest with God about our doubts and about what we are struggling with, we're actually depending on him more. We're basically saying, God, even in the pain, I'll come to you. Even in the grief, even in the loneliness, even in the addiction, even in the bipolar disorder, even with the unfulfilled desires, even when my marriage is falling apart, even when I'm failing as a parent, even when I hurt people and I seemingly can't stop myself, I will come to you and I will pray and I will ask. I will come to you because I believe you can meet me where I am. Help my unbelief. So listen, um, I don't know where your faith is, but I imagine there are some doubts. And so here's my advice. Don't let your doubts get in the way of you standing in front of Jesus and saying to him, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome my insecurities. Help me overcome my fears. Help me overcome my weaknesses. Lean into your faith. Pick up your Bible. Start praying. Start serving others. Start trusting God, and you will see him show up in your life in incredible ways, just like the father in this story did. Let's pray. God, as we wrestle with doubts, um, God, we experience them every day. Uh, Really, God, what what we experience is these lies that Satan puts in our head that move us away from you. Um, God, I I pray that we lean in. Um, God, as we wrestle with this, as we struggle with this, God, I pray that what we do is we stand in front of you. God, that we pursue, that we don't walk away, we don't turn our backs, we don't leave the church. God, but we understand that in our doubts, we can seek you out. And ultimately, you'll give us something so much better than we ever expected. And so God, this week, I pray that's what we do. 
God, I pray that we lean in. I pray that we pick up our Bible. I pray uh, that we take time every single day to worship you, to pray to you, to be in community, to wrestle with these things and really let you work on our doubts and turn them into more faith, just like in this story. God, we're just so thankful that we don't have to be perfect Christians. We don't have to have perfect faith in order to approach you. God, that even in our brokenness and even in our unbelief, we can stand in front of you. And God, you'll bring healing. You'll bring hope. You'll bring joy. You'll bring grace to things that we desperately need in our life. So God, ultimately this week, as we go about our day, God, I just pray that we lean into that. God, we thank you for the ways that you love us and care for us, the ways that you bring us to you. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.